The election is just over a week away. But this episode, we're not going to be running a countdown clock or analyzing polls or talking about battleground states. Instead, we're going to be talking about hair. Presidential hair, that is. This is No One Knows Anything, the politics podcast from BuzzFeed News. I'm Ben Kramer. We have witnessed many historic firsts during this campaign season. The first woman nominated by a major party to run for president. The first former Celebrity Apprentice host nominated by a major party to run for president. And the first presidential election where both candidates have decades of experience being scrutinized and criticized for the choices they make about their hairstyles. Whether it's speculating about Hillary Clinton's scrunchies or the engineering mysteries of Donald Trump's comb forward, people can't help themselves when it comes to these two. And for the most part, Clinton and Trump have embraced this part of their pasts. In her Twitter bio, Clinton proudly claims the title of hair icon. And one of Trump's more benign stunts this election season has been letting people play with his hair to prove that it is actually attached to his head. This episode, we'll be taking a look at how gender and race play into the way we talk about political hair. Plus, we'll talk about Americans' fascination with the hair of their presidents, going all the way back to George Washington. And you'll hear from BuzzFeed beauty editor and hair icon in her own right, Essence Gant, about presidential hair politics and representation. Joining me now is the wonderful Eleanor Kagan. You may know her from the credits. She's director of BuzzFeed Audio. Hi, Eleanor. Hey, Meg. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for being here. So we each have a few examples of the ways that people talk about Trump's hair and Clinton's hair, and we're going to get to them. But first, I want to know... How do you do your hair when you want to feel powerful? When I want to feel powerful these days, I pile my hair up on the top of my head and secure it with a tight rubber band, which is actually how I'm wearing my hair today. Up in a huge top knot makes me feel really powerful. Why? A, it makes me taller. <laughs> I am ba- True. I am barely 5'2". And two, I think it literally makes my silhouette resemble that of an exclamation point. Wow. Um, I'm looking at you so differently now. (laughs) I just think it's loud. It's loud. And the way for me to feel powerful is to be loud. Yeah. And I wanted to get at this first because, like, listen, hair is not the most important part of any political campaign. But people and politicians can be really careful and deliberate about the way that they present themselves. And hair is part of that. I mean, it is for me, too. I mean, from a policy perspective, like, yeah, hair should not matter. But being political is about projecting an identity and an image that you want voters to identify with and support. Okay, so when you went looking for examples of the the way that people talk about Clinton's hair, what did you find? So Hillary has basically been criticized about her hair through her entire career. So back when Bill Clinton, her husband, lost the gubernatorial race, she was partly blamed for it because she appeared to have not put any work into her image. And so she kind of did a makeover and started wearing headbands and then was criticized for the headbands during his presidential run in the early 90s. And the headband was too obvious of a bid for her to appear likable, which, of course, is something that has come up a lot today. like she's trying too hard? Like she's trying too hard. The thing about all of this Hillary hair talk is that she's been aware of it the entire time. 
And that's, I mean, to me, that's one of the things that she has just had to weather as a woman in politics this entire time. Um, There's this great moment where she was on a press tour for her book Hard Choices in 2014, and she suggested that the title should instead be The Scrunchy Chronicles, 112 Countries, and It's Still About My Hair. (laughs) Fast forward to 2016, you have her being criticized uh, by Matt Drudge quite often for uh, wearing a wig, supposedly. And, of course, there's the $600 haircut. Oh, yeah. And and the $600 haircut is this criticism that Clinton got for getting a very expensive haircut at a salon in New York. And this is supposed to be, like, her out-of-touch-with-the-public moment. Because, yeah. of course, like, you have to look perfect, but you can't try too hard. Exactly. So people have been talking about Clinton her entire political life. And they're still talking about her hair now. I found that it was kind of the same for Donald Trump. Although, like, let's be clear, the consequences for men who are criticized for their appearance are very different than the consequences for women. Mm -hmm. But mocking Trump for his hair is an old sport that goes back to the 80s and 90s when Spy Magazine was lampooning him for all kinds of things. And It's sort of like this question, like, what is Donald Trump's hair? How is it made? (laughs) What is it made of? Where does it come from? Who does it? Has been this question that people have always asked about him. And uh, it came up during the campaign last August when he was mocked by a Spanish language broadcaster who basically called him the toupee man. Hmm. I don't wear a toupee. It's my hair. I swear. Come and here. he come had here. a woman come, come up on stage. I'm gonna, we're going to settle this. And pull on his hair. I feel oh, so bad for that woman. Is it mine? Look. To be fair, like, she doesn't Say seem, it, she seems pretty game. Yes, I believe it is. Thank you. <laughs> and have I ever met you before? No. I, I love how he's like, we've never met before. Like, she's not a plant. He didn't put her in the audience. <laughs> There's nothing that would make you think she's a plant more than him being like, I assure you she's not a plant. It's truly an amazing and bizarre moment. I mean, it's not the most bizarre thing that's happened this campaign season, but I I think it's up there. So the next question is, has any of this hair talk been bad or good or anything for Clinton's or Trump's candidacy? To find out, I called Kelly Dittmar. She is an assistant professor of political science at Rutgers University, Camden, and she's looking at the many ways gender expectations affect this year's campaign through something called the Presidential Gender Watch Project. It's a nonpartisan group that has probably been very busy this year. Kelly, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. So when it comes to hair, how much strategizing do campaigns do either around hair or to sidestep the issue of it entirely? Well, I think... Uh, especially for women candidates, but probably true of male candidates as well. You want to neutralize anything that can be a distraction to a campaign. And a really interesting story was in California. So if you remember in 2010, uh, Carly Fiorina, who later went, went on to run for president, was running for the U.S. Senate against Barbara Boxer. And she had had breast cancer. 
um, and was actually battling breast cancer in that contest while she was running. Uh, and she had lost her hair, so she had really a pixie haircut. And her chief strategist talked to me about it and said we were really concerned about her hair. Um, and we were oh concerned. <laughs> we were concerned because you know it would look too masculine. It would look, you know, and basically what he was implying was it would look like she was a feminist or a, a lesbian. So it was something that he paid attention to in thinking about what did that hairstyle imply about her personality, about other characteristics that actually matter much more in voters' evaluations. So women definitely face more pressure when it comes to how they present themselves, and that it definitely extends to their hairstyles. But we're in a unique case this time around where both major candidates, one is a man, one is a woman, have a ton of hair backstory coming into the election. How have you seen them sidestep or address their hair during the campaign? Yeah, I think both of them have actually probably done it pretty effectively. You know, they've embraced the fact that, look, people are going to talk about our hair because they're both used to this. So you've seen Trump joke about his hair to a certain extent, at least in, you know, late night TV when he has what Jimmy Fallon, you know, shake up his hair and allow him to play with his hair. Um, or Hillary Clinton sort of talking about the attention paid to her hair. She's also used that line about, you know, I'll be the first president who won't go gray. Um, you know, so she's tried to, <laughs> you know, tried to play it up as an advantage. And, and arguably, actually, she's done the same thing with pantsuits, right? To sort of joke about it in ways that demonstrate that she She's sort of in on the joke instead of having folks talk about it in a negative way about her. But it is it is interesting, you know, as folks who um, for us who study gender and politics and who are pretty uh, attuned to and attentive to uh, coverage of this stuff. Right. We're always sort of watching for like, oh, gosh, they're covering her hair again. We have to be careful not to do the same thing with male candidates. And it's probably unfair to men and women alike. Yeah, one of the best examples of that that I can think of is that John Edwards' campaign was basically ruined by the discovery of a $400 haircut on his campaign finance filings. And there's also another layer to that, which is sort of feminizing a candidate. And in this case, particularly with John Edwards, I always use that example um, in the ways in which we don't accept traditionally or stereotypically feminine qualities in male candidates, particularly for president, right? So part of the criticism, sure, it was the sort of money he spent on it that, oh, that's so extravagant and it shows he's not like us. And of course, he was a candidate who very much talked about poverty. So it didn't didn't work out very well in that messaging. But what was more striking to me is that we also act like men, um, if they care about their appearance, must be too feminine uh, to be, you know, commander in chief. So it was a way of also feminizing him um, and then arguing that that femininity is not uh, compatible with presidential leadership. Uh, so again, even though you know we're sort of joking about right uh, hair and, and appearance, uh, it can reflect some of the deeper uh, gender norms of politics, and in this case, particularly presidential politics. Do voters care about hair? 
There has been some evidence uh, in the past, uh, folks have done some research on, again, gender to look at if folks see cover appearance coverage overall, if it's hair, outfits, et cetera, does that actually hurt evaluations of the candidate for whom is being, who is being covered on appearance? And some evidence shows uh, in a study just done on women candidates that, yeah, it actually does reduce perceptions of women's qualifications because you're basically distracting folks from their qualifications for the job. Um, but another uh, larger scale study that was done um, by some political scientists showed that actually it has that effect on both men and women. So appearance coverage can be equally detrimental to men and women because, again, it takes you away from the more substantive coverage that might aid a candidate in proving that they're the best leader, they're the best person for the job. How would you rate the, the coverage of the candidate's appearance and that the balance of that so far this year? In this year? Yeah. I mean, I think we actually have seen, you know, I still think probably if we did a, a collective survey and we'll, you know, the scholars will do this post-election um, of media that there's still more attention to uh, probably Hillary Clinton's appearance more than Donald Trump's. But the fact that we're talking about his hair and his hands, um, you know, will will balance those um those calculations a little bit. Um, with Hillary Clinton, you know, I think we're still talking about the pantsuits, we're talking about the hair, we're talking about her smile and her facial features, right? That's beyond sort of the hair hemlines stuff. Um, but um, I also think what has been interesting is, as I was mentioning earlier, the extent to which she and, and him potentially use it themselves, you know, use our attention to their appearance to try to in, create humor. Or in the case of Hillary Clinton most recently, she's actually used what she's worn to communicate a message to folks who um, would know that wearing white, for example, to her convention speech, and again, wearing it in the debate last week, um, was a nod to suffragists, was a nod to the history that she's making in this race. And for those of us who follow that, that was an exciting moment. We knew that there was a sort of wink that she was giving us without saying, um, you know, I'm going to be the first woman president, uh, but she could use her outfit to communicate that. So perhaps we're also talking about appearance in a, a more complex and a bit less trivial way this election. Uh, well, all of this has been so fascinating. Kelly, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. Eleanor. Hey, Meg. I have something for you. What is this? It's a quarter. Thank you. Well, I, ch check out the, the front. Oh, hey, there's George Washington on the front. Okay, but like, check out his hair. It's, uh, I mean, it's a powdered wig, right? Nope. Nope, not a wig. What? George Washington did not wear a wig. Hold on. That was his real hair. Oh my God, he's basically Mugatu from Zoolander. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you're telling me that like, the sort of swept back over his crown, curled in a in a in a line at the nape of his neck, and then like the flattering little the pony, little the little pony at the back. I, it's a rat tail. Let's call it a rat tail. <laughs> All right. Yeah. So that was his real hair. Yeah. It's actually like I think looking at this, it looks very fancy to me. But in George Washington's time, it would not have been. It was a military hairstyle. Oh, tell me more. Well, it was like you kind of like pull it back together and tie it in a ponytail, like right at the bottom of the ponytail, and then let it flop down. And then there's like little pieces of hair on the side, and you kind of fluff them up 
to get that bouncy curl mm-hmm. at the side. I'm making a fluffing motion with my hands right with now. With your shoulders. <laughs> Hit it, it with feels... some Aquanut and then you're uh, then you're good to go and to then, battle. And then powder it. And then like he would powder his natural hair to give it that like wig-like effect. Yeah. And, and that was his real hair. And I think what's so interesting about the fact that it was a military style is that even after he became a political figure, he still used his hair to communicate that he was General Washington. Yeah, clearly that was the hairstyle that made him feel powerful. I bring all of this up because this next story is about George Washington's hair. Over the summer, a little bit of Washington's hair went on display at the Academy of Natural Sciences of Drexel University in Philadelphia. It's part of a bigger collection of human hair that includes other presidential samples. After Washington, there are clippings from the first 12 presidents up through Zachary Taylor, and they're all bound up in a big album that belonged to a Philadelphia lawyer named Peter Brown. Earlier this week, Eleanor and I went to visit the collection to find out why so many presidents gave this guy clippings from their hair and why he wanted them in the first place. We met with Bob Peck. Hi, Eleanor. Hello. Nice to meet you, Bob. Gosh, you guys are so punctual. He's the curator of art and artifacts at the Academy, and he's the guy who was going to show us this big book of human hair. Peter Brown collected hair for what he considered scientific purposes. He was collecting what he called the National Collection of Human Pile, or of, of pile of all kinds, sheep uh, and mammals. Pile is basically different kinds of wool and fur and hair. Brown collected pile from all over the world. But he had a special collection of human hair that came from famous writers and artists. And the presidents. Well, the presidents were used in Brown's experiments uh, as a kind of a balance against the rest of humanity. He saw them as successful, intelligent, um, admirable people. In the 19th century, people had much greater reverence for the presidency than they do today. And so he wanted to have the best and the brightest preserved in this way for all time. But he compared it with other samples that he was getting from common people. You can't learn, like, how smart or excellent someone would have been by studying their hair. Like, that's not—we know now that, that there's nothing, like, different about people's hair that would, that would indicate that kind of information. We do know that now, but if you didn't test it, how would you know? He may have hoped that by getting these leaders in their hair, something would jump out at him that was different from the others. Jennifer Vess is an archivist at the Academy, and she laid out albums for us from Brown's collection. One full of wool, another full of human hair. The album looks kind of like a scrapbook. And each page has a little clipping of hair covered in tissue paper. Some of the clippings are curly and full. Some of them were a little scraggly. Or there's just a pinch where you can just see all the individual strands like George Washington's. So as you'll see, we're looking here at the first page in one of his albums. And it's a lock of George Washington's hair, a little clip of hair tied with a beautiful uh, light blue ribbon. Uh, Every one of the pages in his album has a different layout but they're all done with this sort of reverential, uh, respectful presentation. Looking at a piece of George Washington's hair, I get a little chill. Exactly. This is as close as you and I will ever get to the first president of the United States. So in order to get a lock of presidential hair for his collection, Brown would just write a letter and ask for one. 
Then the president or his children would send a little bundle of hair back, sometimes with a letter in response. They, they tend to be fairly businesslike, and I am sending you the hair and da da da. Uh, I, well, a few have said, yes, it's, 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 uh, it is sort of sad. They say it was much whiter than it used to be. There's a little nostalgia there. Uh, it's a little ad- admission of their own mortality. But most of them are more formal than that, and some of them are handled by secretaries who simply say, the president has asked me to send you his hair, and here it is. Okay, so I know what you're thinking. It's pretty weird that presidents were, like, unfazed by Brown's request for a piece of their body. (laughs) But we were surprised to learn that it was actually pretty normal in the 19th century to give and receive pieces of your hair. People used to carry around each other's hair all the time, particularly people that they loved and cared about. They'd wear their lover's hair in pieces of jewelry. Or little girls would swap hair like kids swap friendship bracelets. Well, I think it began as a very uh, intimate form of gift. It was something physical and tangible that a loved one could carry. And Martha Washington was said to have always had a lock of her husband's hair in in a locket or in a ring or a brooch, but usually a locket that she wore. It would have his portrait painted on one side and then on the back would be the hair. Others did this fairly regularly and it was something that one could carry away. In in the case of presidents, I think it, it was a bit more intrusive for someone from the outside to write. It was one thing for the president to give it voluntarily. And Martha Washington was giving away George's hair, sometimes to people who didn't even ask for it. <laughs> I've seen letters where she would say, <laughs> and, you know, not pass all the news back and forth and then say, I'm enclosing a clip of my husband's hair uh, as a token of our esteem. There was actually quite a bit of George Washington's hair out in the world when Brown was putting his collection together, even though Washington was already dead. And it wasn't just from Martha. There was also Washington's barber who kept the hair that he cut from Washington's head. And there was Washington's secretary, Tobias Lear, who sent Brown the sample in his collection. It was Lear's job to hand out presidential keepsakes. And he cut some hair off Washington's dead body while it was in the coffin. It is strange that it has changed so dramatically from cool to creepy. (laughs) The 19th century would have revered it, and particularly uh, after George Washington died and after the various signers of the Declaration began to die, that hair became more and more precious uh, from 1800 on. uh, And every time the country went through a political turmoil or an economic depression, the hair became more valuable, and I don't mean in a monetary way, but but sentimentally, uh, because the hair reminded us of happier times, of earlier times in the country's history. Brown's collection ends with Zachary Taylor, the 12th president. But over the summer, when the hair was on display, Bob Peck got an idea. So he wrote letters to all of the Democratic presidents who would be in Philadelphia for the convention, asking if they'd like to stop by and add a piece of their own to Brown's collection. The letter that I wrote to him uh, explaining that we were doing the exhibit. And Jimmy Carter wrote back. He writes back in his own hand uh, to Robert, I wear my hair very short, and the barber cuts off pieces that are one quarter to one half inch long. Any advice? Jimmy Carter. And then a month later, because it took time for it to grow, in my mail arrived this nice little Ziploc bag filled with quite a nice handful of salt and pepper hair and a typewritten letter from the president. 
I had a military haircut at the Naval Academy and during my years in submarines. Later, before and during my presidential years, I wore my hair much longer than now. Since returning home from the White House, I have kept it cut quite short, so these pieces are mostly less than one half inch long. I did not anticipate growing longer locks for display in a museum. Best wishes, Jimmy Carter. Brown's collection now includes a 13th president, and maybe it will keep growing. Well, I have been told that I should pursue this a bit further since I've been successful with President Carter. Uh, We will have a new president coming into the White House in just a few months, and I suppose that's an opportunity to try again. Do you think the practice of, like, hair being not creepy and instead being loving will ever come back? I don't know. You know, after seeing this hair collection, I had a little thought that was like, maybe it would be nice to have, like, a little lock of my boyfriend's hair and a piece of jewelry. (laughs) Like, I actually, like, I get it. And maybe that would be something that I would really like. I don't know if it's going to be like friendship bracelets popular, but <laughs> I, I do think that there is something appealing to it, at least to me. So uh, can I can I pull back the producer curtain for a minute and just reveal that? Uh, so before we came to the studio today, Meg asked that I that we each bring a surprise for one another. Um, so Meg, I I brought you a lock of my hair. <laughs> um, you're welcome for one. So it's, <laughs> I can't tell if you're horrified or like, it's adorable. Look, it's in a little baggie and it's just a curl and there's a little blue polka dot ribbon tied around <laughs> to hold it all together. Thank you, Eleanor. This is such a sweet gesture. You're welcome. <laughs> Next up, we're going to talk about what happens when presidential hair takes on a deeper meaning, one that is positive and affirming. For Black Americans, especially Black women, hair is politicized in so many ways. In the case of President Obama and First Lady Michelle Obama, many people saw themselves and their hair represented in the first family for the very first time. Essence Gant, beauty editor here at BuzzFeed, joined us to talk about that. Hi, Essence. Hi. So you brought a few examples of amazing hair moments from Obama's presidency. And the first one is about Michelle Obama at the 2013 inauguration. Can you describe that look for us? Yes, I can. I remember it very well. So she had like, you know, a bob uh, hairdo and these bangs. And first off, bangs are like everybody can't pull bangs off. It's a I've super, failed so hard. Yeah, it's, it's like. You just can do it or you can't. It's kind of like singing. Either you can sing or you can't. (laughs) So, like, she, you know, she had bangs, which is, like, a thing in fashion. They're sharp. They're sharp, yeah. They make a statement. They make a statement. They are saying, look at my face. Yeah, look at my face. literally pointing at your face. Right. In the front, <laughs> like, you know, like, yeah. and not those, like, side bangs. It's, like, the bangs, like, that sit right smack mm-hmm. dab in the center of your forehead. Yeah. And, like, very few people can do that. You know, we've seen Naomi Campbell do it, pull it off effortlessly, of course. Anna Wintour, like, I don't think I've ever seen her without bangs. The world's never seen her forehead. I've n- I don't know what it looks like. <laughs> I legit what's, don't know. What's what, on there? We have no idea. We have no idea. 
and that's the thing about fashion it's like all about kind of like things that are like inaccessible like super exclusive so if it's not the price point that makes something inaccessible and inexclusive it's a trend that not everybody can pull off like bangs oh my god and so that like definitely kind of like solidified her as oh she's legit like a fashion icon now so Michelle Obama yes at the inauguration yes what else also, okay, so I have one more Michelle Obama moment. The um, White House dinner where they, like, hosted the president of China, you know, because that's totally, like, what awesome world leaders do. This is, like, the official state dinner. <laughs> yes. There's, like, one of these every now and then. Right, And it's right. always, like, kind of like a big fashion moment for yes. the president and the first lady because everyone wants to know, like, who is she wearing? What right. are they doing? Yes, You know, they walk out, and all of her hair is, like, swept to one side. She has this side bang, like, you know, these long, beautiful curls or whatever. And this hairstyle, we've seen uh, Christina Milian wear it, Lala Anthony, um, Rihanna. Like, for me, it was just, like, a huge black hair moment because you recognized it, like, I have a sister who's worn that hairstyle or an aunt or a best friend. So it was super huge, and I think, like, even for black women, like, it's moments like that that make us love her all the more and make her so much more real to us because it's like, okay, we see you, like, you made it to the top and you took your blackness with you. And that's a thing for us. Like, that, that's super, super important because there's always kind of, like, these conversations or, like, you know, people forgot where they came from or, you know, don't forget your roots or whatever, whatever. And it's like, she's made it. There's no more making it. Like, she's, she's done it. She's reached peak and she's still very much a black woman and we've seen that countless times over and over again and that hairstyle was definitely one of those times okay what about the president okay I saw this photo like kind of floating around the internet you know how things get like super popular and you see it like all these places yep and it's the photo of him bending down and there's the little boy little african-american boy like touching his hair and so I remember first seeing it I was like oh my god how adorable you know and not really even putting together, like, why that was so important, what it meant or anything. And then First Lady um, Obama was talking about it on a talk show, and she was saying how that was her favorite picture. You know, they're always taking these photos of the president, and that's her favorite picture. And she was saying how the young boy asked President Obama, does your hair feel like mine? And so President Obama bends down and, you know, tells the little boy, like, you know, well, why don't you touch my hair and see? And the kid is, like, a little, like, nervous to do it at first or whatever. And then finally he does, and he says to the president, yeah, it feels like mine. And when she's told that story, like, I, like, have you ever been, like, kind of flooded with emotions and you feel like a heat almost you feel like tears welling up and it's just like a heat in your body and like you want to cry and I was just so touched by that because the politics of black hair alone is so deep and it has so many layers slave owners would actually like separate and like cast slaves by like hair texture complexion So the looser your hair, the softer it was, basically the closer, you know, it was to white people's, then you were like a little bit better. You may have gotten a job inside the house versus like in the field. And even last year I was in South Africa and um, our tour guide was saying how even during apartheid, like there were, it was like a very similar kind of caste system in place to like separate people and create this division within a group of people. And he was saying how, 
you know, they did something called the pencil test where they would take a pencil. Basically, the government would take a pencil. And if you could get it through your hair, then you were a colored person. So you weren't as good as white, but you weren't as bad as black either. What do you mean like you could get it through your hair? So if you take a pencil and like you like put it, place it in your hair and you kind of like start at the root. And if you can pull it all the way through like like that um, or whatever, which those of you listening can't see my demo. But uh, (laughs) it's almost as if you're like trying to like put your fingers through someone's hair with a pencil. with a pencil. But if they couldn't get the pencil through your hair, then that means it was basically too coarse. And so you were then considered a black person. It wasn't as good. And so I say all of that to say black people for so long have, like, carried that, even in fashion and media today. Like, if you cut on the TV, like... I say all the time, like, you see the same black woman celebrities over and over again. It's, it's like you see the same image all the time. And so that moment was so huge because this kid whose hair was coarse touched the president's hair, who is the most powerful person in the world, and his hair feels the same as his. Like, how you see yourself affects the way you move throughout the world. If you see yourself as awesome and powerful and smart and brilliant and beautiful, you move that way. And even at the times where you're low or you're met with like obstacles, you rise above them. Like you're, you're, you have a start, you have a confidence, and it's just, ugh, I just, I get emotional thinking about it again because President Obama and his family have shown a group of people who are so often left out of so many conversations that like you can make it, we made it. Like I just. It, it was just so powerful. Essence Gant is beauty editor at BuzzFeed. So, Eleanor, we know that Trump and Clinton have taken a very deliberate approach to the way they talk about their own hair, which is already being talked about by so many other people. They're owning it. We know that 20th and 21st century Americans weren't the first to pay attention to presidents' hair. And that Americans used to be so fascinated by presidential hair that they wanted a little bit of it for themselves. Not creepy at the time. And we know that presidential hair has the power to move people. Because representation matters. What we don't know is where I'm going to put this delicate curl block of your (laughs) hair. (laughs) Eleanor, thank you so much for going on this hair journey with me. Thanks, Meg. I had a blast. No One Knows Anything is produced by me, Meg Kramer, with editorial oversight from Kate Nocera and Eleanor Kagan. That's me. And production support from Chiquita Pascal and Julia Furlong. Our music was composed by Beauty Pill. Subscribe to No One Knows Anything on iTunes to follow our coverage through the election. You can follow us on Twitter, we're at No One Knows, or you can email us at no one knows anything at buzzfeed.com. That's all for now, and we'll be back soon with more things we don't know. 